I don't know how you're getting on with Ecclesiastes. Have you read the book of Ecclesiastes before? Are you familiar with the writings of Ecclesiastes? Great story. There's this one verse in it that has... One verse in it. There's loads of verses in it. But there's one verse in it at the moment that, that is a, it's a key to understanding the text. But it has become... I don't know, just every now and again these verses grab you. And it's great. And it gives you this real insight and this picture into us and how we see God. He has set, it's in chapter 3, back end of chapter 3, and I think Paul's referred to it and, and I've referred to it in chapter 2, and it's, it's a verse that's going to stay with us. He has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This idea of eternity exists within us. And it's a tough concept to grasp, isn't it? This idea of eternity. I was, in fact, I've had a couple of conversations with uh, little ones, a few children, my own children included, but it's come up in Sunday school and, and I've been sharing this idea of what eternity is. And they're sat there and I'm talking to, talking to them about eternity and I'm selling it. I'm really giving it some. I'm like, this is, you know, we're going to get to spend eternity with God. You know, there'd be no weeping and no crying. And, I'm, you know, it's, it's part of the sale of the gospel. I'm really encouraged by it. It's amazing. I'm really bigging it up. And, and this young child is looking back at me with just sheer disappointment and confusion. And, and, and they said, eternity? That's a long time. And they're looking back at me. And I'm saying, no, this is, we get to spend eternity with God. And this young child looked back up at me and said, what would we get? Bored? This is and I'm thinking, there's been lots of times in my Christian walk where I've had to defend different aspects of my faith, but it's never been the case that I've had to look back, you know, one of, the, one of our trump cards, we get to spend eternity with God, and somebody's looked back up at me and said, well, I don't know, I don't know what I think about eternity with God, because it, it's, it's a difficult concept to grasp, isn't it, for a child to grasp, but it's difficult for us to get as adults as well, isn't it, this idea of eternity, because we are trapped in our bodies. Do you have that experience where you're find yourselves looking into the mirror and you just see yourself fall into bits. Do you know what I mean? There was a time in my life, uh, when uh, this time in all our lives, when, when hair was an attractive feature. It drew people towards us. And now I feel like my hair's taken a turn for the worst and it's become, it's become a method of scaring people off. I get hairs in my nose and in my ears that suggest I don't want people around. And hair's now become something that keeps me warm, not attracts people towards me. And we get older and we've become so aware of our bodies as we get older, don't we? There was a time when I could, I could walk around a chemist's and not have the slightest idea what any of these pills in these boxes were for. I would look around this store. I remember as a 14-year-old boy looking around with my mum and looking around at this store and thinking, I don't know what any of this stuff is for. And I'd look quite curiously. i think, I wonder what on earth is going to go wrong with your body that you are going to need all this stuff to make you all right, and now I'm a 37-year-old man, and I don't wonder that anymore. I know what about half the stuff is for, and now the other half of the stuff that's in the chemist, I think I don't want to know what that stuff is. I'm not curious, and because we get very aware, don't we, of our, of our the limitations that come with our bodies. I'm very aware of this, the limitations of this world that we're in. Understanding a concept like eternity. It's difficult, and yet a big part of this message that we're going to look at just now would be really keen for us to forget 
our aging limbs and our aging bodies. And to forget this world, the confines of this world that we live in, and to remember, and this is crucial to understanding the meaningless of Ecclesiastes, is that we are eternal beings. And I feel like I've said something. If you've never been in church before, you'll look at the guy and think that's a spacey, weird Christian thing to say. But this is one of the truths, the fundamental pictures of the Bible. We see it in Ecclesiastes. It's necessary for us to grasp hold of this. We are eternal beings. We have got some sense somewhere deep down within our DNA of eternity. And part of this passage, part of understanding this difficult passage, will be remembering that we are eternal beings. In order for us to do that, I'm just going to um, ask that we just spend a second just now just in prayer, and then we'll open up this word um, of God before us. Father God, just now, um, we're going to need our minds broadened. And we're so aware of, of the, the bodies that confine us and the world that we live in. Father, challenge us and shape us. And cut into us when we need cut into. Challenges that there is more to this meaningless life than we can see. Father, make us faithful people again. We ask in your name. Amen. It'd be great if we could have um, Ecclesiastes 4, first three verses up on the screen. It would be brilliant. <coughs> We're going to read them again. Um, because I really feel like this is lovely, deep poetic texts, and it's right that we have our eyes glued to it and we search it for meaning. And it is purposefully, I think, purposefully egged up depressing. We are supposed to be a little bit appalled at the bleakness. So join me in being appalled temporarily at the bleakness of this passage. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died, listen to this. this. This might be the darkest corner of the whole Bible. I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than this, better than both, is the one who has never been born who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. What does he see in this text? I don't think it's just that. And we've got to remember Solomon's doing a bit of a strategic step back look at all that's going on in the world. I don't think it's just that he's, he's noticed somebody suffering. It's not even that he's noticed that this person that's suffering has got no comforter. It's the realization that this is the way of life. He's had all this wealth, he's had all these genius ideas. And I'm, again, I'm saying that it's Solomon, I'm, a, I'm making a bit of an assumption, and in some senses I'm just putting a name to a face that we can study it with. But he see, he's, he's had all this achievement, and yet he looks at the world and he makes the assessment that it is meaningless. There is the reality of suffering. And it's a picture that we're drawn to because it really resonates with us, doesn't it, this picture? In our world today... We have made some ridiculous technological advances in the last, like, 20 years, the last 100 years. You can, you can Skype somebody in Hawaii and notice that they've got a bit of sand on their nose. We can put men or we put a man on the moon. We've done some incredible things. The world has got 
so much smaller, and yet, in an incredible way, there is still suffering in our world today in 2017. It was the same in Solomon's day. It has never gone away. And Solomon looks at that picture and said, and provokes, I think, in us this idea that we would be, and I'm just going to regurgitate the words of Solomon, we would be better off dead than living in a world that faces that reality. Can you imagine that? This is the place that he's bringing us to. I don't know what picture that that puts in your head. Better off dead than facing the reality of, of life. I don't know if you remember, and I'm trying to look at how old everybody is. I realize that I'm getting older. The two towers when they fell down. Some of you are like, I was seven, Ash. I've got no, I can't remember this. But, but I think for most of us, this, the images will be just right there in front of us. And maybe you can remember the moment when you saw people jumping out of the towers. Do you remember that? Do you remember seeing that sort of image? And the image that was in my mind at this time was, what on earth was going on inside that building that was so bad that made jumping out of it look like the logical thing to do? The choice of a certain death was better than whatever was going on, whatever grim picture was going on inside those two towers. And that is the picture that that the Bible that Solomon is putting in our minds just now. The world that we live in, he escalates it as far as he can and says, this is the picture that I want you to see just now. The world, in light of the fact that there are people who are still suffering, is so grim that we should consider whether it's better that we're alive or dead. I'm trying not to depress you too much, and I realize as I'm looking around, I'm saying some pretty depressing stuff. But this is the place that the writer is taking us to. It's the bleakest picture that we can ever imagine. And if we're to bring it into a contemporary context, we might say something like, he's making us watch comic relief, not the funny bits, just the bits of the children starving in Africa, on loop, going round and round and round and round, while we fill our faces with takeaway and turn up the central heating on our TV. And we look at these images, we are drawn to this image, and somewhere in the back of our minds, we say, this is wrong. Something has gone wrong with the world that we live in. in for, the, for it to be the case that we can have thousands of years of progression, and yet there are people in the world, even people on our doorsteps, that are suffering, tragically suffering. And Solomon, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, makes us look at this picture. He makes us dwell upon it. He writes it so darkly that we can't move past it. And that is the way it is with Ecclesiastes, isn't it? We can't just skip over it. Maybe you can. But it's not what the writer wants. He wants us to be drawn into just how dark and grim a picture it is and then say, well, I don't know what to do with this. Why is there this suffering going on in the world? And he takes us down this route. And, this is, and we're thinking, aren't we, this is not what the Bible does. I think there's a lot of people that, there's a lot of people, I think there's a school of thought that Christianity can sometimes be a bit of a crutch, a bit of a, comfy, a comfort blanket. Do you know what I mean? People that go through, that are Christians, just rely upon God just to get them through so they can have a decent night's sleep, so they can get a bit of peace for a bit of career advice. And their relationship with God exists on this basis. And sometimes the truth of it is that that can be the case with us, can't it? It can just be a little bit of a superficial relationship that we have. 
the writer of Ecclesiastes does not let us off with this. He doesn't allow our Christianity to be superficial. He takes us down the darkest path. I guess we have this picture, don't we, that the Bible doesn't cover the difficult details. We maybe have this preconception. And I guess maybe people that have not been into church or read the Bible might have this preconception that the Bible ducks difficult issues. Look at what the Bible does here. It gets you to stare into, the, into, into your worst ever day. This is the worst ever day. You are looking at the pictures of the tears of somebody suffering and declaring that you'd be better off dead. It takes you down this road. It buys you a drink. It walks you down the road and holds your hand and says, stare at this picture. Now tell me what you see. It doesn't allow our Christianity to be superficial. It doesn't allow us to go through the motions. It says, look at the bleakness of the world. I want you to walk down this road and tell me if you've still got a faith in God. Here's what I think. And I'm reflecting back on parts of my life. It's been the case when my walk with God has been that superficial walk. It's just been, I feel a bit ill just now, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible occasionally in the morning. This book of Ecclesiastes takes us to the darkest possible place that we can imagine and asks us to consider God. It's not just a crutch to get us through life. It's a thorough explanation of the meaning of life. It explores our doubts and takes us to the hardest places and leaves us there. And it just leaves us in this position of, I guess, as we stare at this picture of suffering and we're faced with this reality of suffering, that we ask questions like, well, why? Does this mean there's no God? Does this mean that I don't have enough faith? Can there be a God when this much bad stuff is happening? And why in my gut do I observe something terrible happening and I just crave justice? Isn't that the way with us human beings? Isn't that an odd human trait? Just stop and consider that for a second, the way that we crave justice as people. Isn't it odd in our kids that we can observe our kids just from a very young age, almost out of nowhere, just this incredible sense of right and wrong. Just recently, the case for the, um, the Anfield 96th, do you remember the story about the, not the Anfield 96, the Liverpool fans that died at Hillsborough? It got resolved. There was justice for those fans, but it took 25 years. They had no support. The national press was against them. The police, the law was against them, but they saw something that was wrong. And here we get to see a big part of the human spirit. They craved justice. Now, what does this tell us about our human species? We crave justice. Why do we crave justice? Why do we see some situations and say to ourselves, that's just wrong, or do we? We live in a very different age, I think now. We live in a, a relative world, don't we? That's a phrase that we'll often get talked about. Um, there was a time when you could have walked around Cass High Street and you would have met a guy with a, with a flat cap on. Maybe I think there's still a few guys with flat caps on now. And they would, they would have used language like, he's a wrong'un. Maybe there's still people around that still use that kind of language. And it was just this sense that there's just this real black and whiteness about what was right and wrong in the world. Yeah, that's wrong and that's right. Nowadays, if you walk through Cass, maybe not Cass, <laughs> most, most city centers in the world, you'll find people that they, they won't be wearing the flat caps. They've got kind of trendy checked shirts on and a, a well-groomed beard. And they will say, not this is right and this is wrong. They will say phrases like, ah, it's all relative, isn't it? It's all relative. Or what, something that's good for you, whatever's good for you, 
whatever blows your hair back, that sort of expressions will be used. There's this, this, there's this culture of, think, of, of relative thinking in the world. And I guess to trace this back through, it, we live in a postmodern modern world. There was perhaps a time in our country and in a lot of countries where we were probably, our morals were probably more directed by God and we could say that this is absolutely right and, abso- and this was absolutely wrong. And we, that might have been abused, but that was at least the case, that the power base for our morality came from a God perspective. But now, the age in which we live in, broadly speaking, on the high street in Cass, is that this, this has been changed and we now have a more scientific perspective of the world. And, and right, an absolute right, an absolute wrong, in terms of a position as, from an absolute power, don't exist anymore. It is relative. Nietzsche and Sartre say things like, God is dead, there is no ultimate authority, no ultimate purpose. Our morality comes from people evolving to make their lives better and easier. So everything becomes a bit arbitrary. Nothing is absolute anymore. How does that sit with you? This idea that our morality sort of is something that evolves. There's no absolute rights and wrongs anymore. We have preferences. Some things we prefer more than others. I think Dawkins was caught out in a really unfortunate interview when he kind of said, and you can look it up on YouTube, that, that even rape was arbitrary. It wasn't wrong in an absolute sense. It's just that we really don't prefer it. How does that sit with you? I think, for me, there are some things in this world that are just wrong, aren't there? It's not that it's different. It's not that it's evolved to be different. It's not that it's our preference. We look at them, and it's like we can almost see the line in the sand somewhere down the line, and we say, that's wrong. It's almost like it's not even from ourselves. It's not something that we've learned. We're looking outside of ourselves, and we can say, that's crossed the line of right and wrong. So when we see Hitler committing genocide with millions of Jews, we don't look and say, that's just a different way to do life than me. That's an interesting way of doing life. We say, that's wrong. Maybe when we listen to Donald Trump talk about women, maybe when we listen to Donald Trump say anything, we, look, we listen to it and we, do, we say, that's just wrong. When we see a baby starving and suffering, we say to ourselves, that's just wrong. This idea of right and wrong is not something I think that evolves or that we create. It is something that we already know. And we're left with this, this confusion and this picture. Why is there suffering in the world? Why do we yearn for justice? And then the writer, if you can just skip to verse 3, gives us this clue. And remember, we're keeping this idea in our heads that eternity is set in our minds. The writer gives us just this incredible clue. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not yet seen the evil that is done under the sun. Here's a, here's a phrase that comes back. The writer in this, in the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says lots of things, but he never says very much without this line, under the sun. He qualifies almost everything with this line, under the sun. This is something that we do, isn't it? As human beings, we qualify stuff. Not everything, but we don't talk about our life, because he's talking about very general things. He's talking about the whole of life, and yet he always feels the need to qualify it by saying, this is what happens under the sun. We do that when we want to qualify something as being quite specific. We might have had a raucous stag do sometime back in our early youth, and we will qualify it by saying, oh yeah, when we were in Ibiza, 
And what we're really saying there is, this is not the, no, the way I behave ordinarily. I'm not ordinarily comfortable with the way I behaved in Ibiza, but it's specific to this time in Ibiza. Or if we're a bit older, we might say, well, when I was young, I did this. And what we're doing here is putting it in a specific box. And there's this great clue for us in Ecclesiastes, what the writer does. He keeps on using this phrase. He talks a lot about meaninglessness, but keeps on saying, and this is how it is under the sun. We can understand that term, under the sun, as our view of the world without God in the picture. And it is a painful reality to be faced with. It's a painful picture. We have a sense, as we said at the start, of God placing eternity in our hearts. We've got this picture of eternity in our hearts, and yet we are living under the sun. Do you see the conflict that comes with this? We live under the sun. Eternity is in our hearts. We can see everything, the full potential. We've, we've known what it was like at one time to walk with God. We can, we've got this sense of God's greatness somewhere deep within us, and yet we exist under the sun. The writer to the Romans put it like this, Romans 8, 18. And it gives us kind of the bookend perspective on the Bible on, on, I guess, bookend perspective on the whole of our life, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And this verse is worth hanging on to. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I'll read verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of God. It gives us a real picture of the bookends of life, the bookends of the expanse of time, and it makes it more painful. We can look back to a time when us as human beings in the Garden of Eden walked at perfect peace with God. Somewhere deep down within our DNA, we know what it's like for God's rule and reign to exist. We can sense it. Perfect justice. And then as it says in Romans 8, 18, will there be a time in the future when God is going to make all things perfect again? And we're on this trajectory This is the way that we're heading. This is part of our story. We've got this sense of this perfectness of God, this full, big picture, eternity set in our hearts, and we've got this sense as well that God is going to make all things good. But just right now, we live under the sun. We live in the reality of the injustice. So why do our hearts ache when we see injustice? Why can life be so painful sometimes? Because... Because we have a sense that it should never have been that way. We have a sense of what it is to walk perfectly with God. So when we see a child that dies of starvation because of a war somewhere else in the world, our heart breaks because we know that God created a perfect world. And we know right now that under the sun, the world is not perfect. And and I guess... As Christians, we can say this, but I guess as well, for everybody watching on, this is the reality of it. There is this real hole 
this real gap in our lives, this ache for justice because God doesn't have his rule and reign on this earth right now. Our hearts bleed at injustice, not because it points to an evolutionary hiccup, because we live in times that reject God's rule and reign. And what the writer does at this moment is it gives us some wisdom in how we live between the trees, if you like. How do we cope with the fact that we're on this trajectory? In our hearts, we know that with this sense of eternity, but right now, we live with the dilemma of under the sun. We live with the actions, with the consequences of our free will. We live in a world that rejects God, that has pain, and that has discomfort. How do we live in that reality? So verse 4 kind of paints some wisdom for us. And the general pattern of wisdom, particularly in this, in this little chapter, but really throughout the book, is that we need to stop thinking temporally. We need to stop thinking right now. We need to not chase the wind. Notice how many times the, the phrase chase the wind is in this passage. And we need to think eternally. So we need to exist amongst this temporal world, knowing that one day we get to enjoy eternal life, which won't be boring, it will be amazing. But right now we have got to live with wisdom under the sun. Verse 4 says, And I saw all the toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's a real damning indictment of human beings, isn't it? What he says about our motivation. We've achieved some incredible things. We are moved to do incredible things. And yet he's saying, and I guess he's hammering it up and egging it up again, is that human beings do this stuff because they have envy of somebody else's stuff. It's true, isn't it, that that happens sometimes. I mean, what the writer does is ham it up. He puts a mirror on us and says, look at the kind of things you human beings do. So it's not always what we do. It's not always our pattern just to want something because somebody else has got it. But it's often our pattern. How often have you um, had the pleasure of visiting somebody else's home and it's a new home? And you've been like really happy with your house to this point. In fact, it's been quite a nice house. Do you know what I mean? You're quite comfortable there. Couch is great. TV's fine. You're quite happy with your garden. It's not perfect. And then you go and visit somebody else's house and you come back and you say to your partner, you say, like, I think we need an upgrade, love. And it's not, it's not like born out of your own discomfort at your own house. It's just, it's just keeping up with the Joneses. And there's just some massive wisdom in this passage. It says, look, it like shines a mirror on our lives and says, look what you human beings do. Look what you sometimes do. And he uses this expression, chase after the wind, because what he's saying is, do you, know, do you know where this ends up? And he's not like condemning, he's not condemning achieving stuff or having a nice house or anything like that. He's saying, look at what your motivation for those things is, because this is chasing after the wind, because this doesn't end with contentment. You are just wanting something because you, your, your mate's got something. Then this ends with you working yourself into an early grave, because there's no end to that. It's just a chasing after the wind. So there's just this real wisdom. What do you do with the temporal stuff? What is your motivation for what you do with your life? Be wise with the temporal things. Don't chase after the wind. Verse 5, and this is brilliant. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. I love this picture. There's like three different perspectives on how hard you should work. 
that kind of idea. The first guy is the fool that folds his hands. And the idea, the sort of the, if you read, read into the words, it's the idea that he, end, he ends up having to eat himself because he's just got nothing. It's just this idea that, so he's looked at the situation that's been laid out, that there is suffering and that one day we do die. And he's looked at, he's looked at the prospects of this for his life and he's gone, blow it. I'm just going to, I'm folding my hands. I'm not going to entertain this life. I'm happy to be ruined. And there's the other extreme, the guy with both hands full who looks at life and says, well, we're not here for long. I'm going to work myself to the bone and grab everything I can get. And then there's the perspective in the middle of the guy who's got one handful. And he's saying, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. I guess what I want us to think about is what is the best eternal perspective on how we work? What is the way we could honor God the most? What is the way that shows we have got our complete faith and trust in a holy God? Is it by just folding our hands and walking away? Hello. Or is it by working ourselves to the bone? Or is it by saying to God, I'm thankful for what I've got. not going to not work hard, but I am content at what you've given me. How does Jesus teach us to pray? He says, give us this day our daily bread. What does he say? Don't not give us anything. Don't give us enough food to last us weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Ask for enough so that you maintain a relationship of trust with your God. There's just a bit of wisdom in not working yourself to the bone and not abandoning life. There's a pathway, I think, that says, we trust you, God, for the way that we live. 1 Timothy 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we bought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Contentment gives an odd message, I think, to a lot of people. If you tell somebody in your, I don't know, I guess regular house with your regular job and your regular wife and family or your regular husband or your regular circumstance and you say to somebody, that you, one of your colleagues, I'm just really content, people often view that with suspicion. It's like, why? How on earth are you content? And yet I think when we show to God that we are content with the things that we have, what it says is, I trust you. I'm really thankful for what you've done. I'm happy with where I am. It says, I've got faith in you to deliver me. So there's this real inherent message that we should just really value contentment. Just watch what, our, watch what your motivation is. Value contentment. And then we move into verse 7. It's just kind of, this is kind of like the closing bit of wisdom. And I guess in this, I'm just going to read it out. Let's remember Solomon's circumstance, if, it, if indeed it was Solomon, that he's a rich guy. He's had lots of different pleasures in his life. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a small, there was a small, there was a man. He wasn't small. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though they may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, accord and it escalates for a purpose. A cord of three strands. I guess we'd expect it to be two. A cord of three strands. 
is not quickly broken. Let's remember Solomon's circumstance. He's had a, he's had a pretty enjoyable life, looks like to me. He's got up to all kinds of mischief, and yet, as he looks back and reflects on his life, he, he reflects, man, those aren't the things that, that were lasting. He reflects, man, what, what, was, what was really important was all the proper relationships. He looks back at all the women he's had and all the things that he's done. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't crave more of them. He said, no, what, what, I, what I really value is companionship and friendship. I guess when we look at our lives, there's this real tendency for us as, as human beings living under the sun, seeing the world racing by, for us to join in this rat race. One of the pictures that comes out of Ecclesiastes is that life under the sun, life without God in the picture, can be meaningless. And one of the habits of us as human beings is that we forget that we are eternal beings. We look at ourselves as creatures under the sun and we chase after the wind. We join in the rat race. We join in the meaningless. And part of the wisdom that comes out of this text, as Solomon maybe reflects on his life, is just to really value things that are eternal, to be aware that we are eternal beings and to be aware that the things that count are eternal things. And the temptation for us as Christians, I think, is just to forget that, forget that we spend eternity somewhere and to grab everything we can right now. How can we show that we believe and honor God for the eternal things? Be wise with the temporary stuff. Focus on the eternal stuff. Is this I guess pulling some of these thoughts together, this idea that as a human species we crave justice and there is this present reality of injustice in the world. There's this lovely story in John 8 where Jesus, and it's a really nice picture, Jesus is sat drawing in the sand, really lovely little story, and these very angry men bring this woman caught in adultery right under Jesus' noses, and they've got stones in their hand. And they want justice. It's interesting already that they just bring the woman because they could quite legitimately stone the man and the woman, but they just bring the woman. So there's already a case for, for us looking at this story and thinking this is oppressive to the woman. This woman is, is caught in the act of adultery. She's brought right there. It's just this horrific, volatile situation. It's this horrible situation. Jesus is there drawing in the sand, and the guys are there with their stones in their hands, ready to throw the stones at this woman. This is what the law would tell them to do. This is how they see justice coming about. And Jesus does something incredible. He satisfies the need for justice, and he avoids suffering. Look at what he says. Let him, maybe you can remember this text, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And what happens to all these angry men who are craving justice? It says the old ones, the wiser ones perhaps start first and they drop their stones and they all walk away. Eventually the younger ones walk away and then there's just Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says to her, who's left to condemn you? And she says, no, there's nobody here to condemn me. And he says to her, right, okay, go and leave your life of sin. You see, what Jesus does is incredible. He's almost been trapped, but he meets the need 
for justice. He doesn't tell them even not to stone this woman. He brings perfect justice. What does he say? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You see, eternal judgment, righteous judgment, judges everybody. Jesus doesn't even need to tell them to put the stones down. He just judges righteously. And the suffering that was going to be imminent, we were going to see this woman stoned to death, even that subsides because of Jesus' wisdom. You see, what? how do we cope in this world that seems unfair, that throws tons of problems at us, that just seems impossible to handle? It seems like no matter what you do, you're going to be faced with some trauma. In this temporal world, you need to focus on something eternal. The writer to the Hebrews, and I don't know if you could pop that passage on, that might be really great if you could pop that passage on, encourages us. And I guess, I guess the lesson here, this is a bunch, of Christ, a bunch of Christians, early Christians, who are really struggling with their faith and, and struggling, I guess, under massive persecution, persecution that we won't ever see. And the advice to these Christians is to fix your eyes on something eternal. Don't look around for temporal satisfaction. Don't give up the race. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Here's my encouragement to you as we, as we wrap up and we finish. In the, in the world that we live in under the sun, where suffering is, is rife, and injustice in an incredible way will never go away under the sun, is to focus not on the temporal things, but on something eternal. I'd encourage you, I guess, to observe Jesus in the Gospels and turn to him in your weakness.